Salam, guys. I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. I'm Ibrahim Khan, your host from Islamic Finance Guru. And with me, we have our august guest, Umar Suleiman, from various different hats. But the main one, Umar, I think, is director at 360 Risk. Umar, welcome. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Ibrahim and all of the listeners. I was going to say viewers, but listeners. <laughs> IFG, mashallah. Yes, 360 Risk is our consultancy dealing in kind of risk regulation and the Sharia compliancy and advisory space. So, yeah, that's my main topic, so but to speak. People, I mean, you're a man who is well known in the right circles, right? So if I say Umar Suleiman, people know you in the Islamic finance world because you've been involved in that so long. You've been involved in that was seen with Islam 21C and you're a close student and colleague of Sheikh Haytham al-Haddad and various different projects. And in the city where I used to work, you give the khutbas there as well. MashaAllah, really powerful khutbas in the Dutch center, which anyone who's worked in the city will know. So MashaAllah, I think people will recognize you from all sorts of different angles. Yeah, <laughs> that's very kind of you. I mean, look, we go where the khair is, wherever there's goodness and an opportunity for taking and also giving some khair we try to be involved in. Alhamdulillah. And so you're a tooting lad, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I'm from South London, so originally Streatham or St. Retham on the common. I used to tell people when I tried to try and make it sound more posh, but um, <laughs> I guess my uh, initial experiences, yeah, from tooting would be my initial, even terbia from tooting. I used to attend study cycling tooting, but I was born and brought up in Streatham, which is not far. SW16 and tooting's SW17, just to give the listeners an idea of proximity. And so how was it like growing up in Tooting? This was like in the kind of 80s and 90s, I'd say. From 90s, 80s, I was still a bit young, bro. <laughs> 90s is when the action started. 90s is when the action started, subhanAllah. It was an interesting time and space. I guess this was also in terms of the UK Dawa scene. There was an emergence of a few different groups at that time. And when you're kind of in your early teens, going into your mid-teens, your first experience of Islam. And so we really at this time you started seeing the peak of groups like Hizbutahir, the Salafi Dawah movement, kind of the Sufi movement from the likes of, I guess, Hamza Yusuf and these guys, mashallah. The Ikhwani groups also, some people aren't familiar with them, young Muslims and these types of groups, they were still active as well and kind of they'd become more quiet. And at the same time, you suddenly saw the rise of the internet and information sharing a lot less than it is now. And then we had issues in like Bosnia that happened. And so you throw all of this into the melting pot. So it's a very interesting time to kind of grow up in and kind of have my first experience of Islam that was different to the Islam, I guess, that perhaps our parents' generation understood and practiced. And how did you navigate that? Because I was talking to another entrepreneur, Osman Khan, who also grew up in this time period. Yeah. And- and he was saying that it was just exactly as you said, an absolute melting pot and there's so many different ideas being thrown around and everyone kind of thinks they're right. For me personally, I kind of grew up in, firstly, I wasn't in London. So I think that mm-hmm. was, it was a very different experience. I was in the Northeast 
and obviously it was like the kind of the decade after, so which was when I think a lot of these things had died down a lot. But how did you, as a teenager and young adult, navigate this whole plethora of different kind of things being thrown at you? I have to say, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, I've always been very blessed in life, even to this day, Ibrahim, in being surrounded by good people, good mentors, good people who gave advice at the right time. At that time, when I was kind of growing up, and I guess my story is a little bit different, perhaps, from the other guys. I come from a broken home, actually. My father raised my older brother and me on his own. I didn't have any contact with my natural mother for 120 years. I mean, that's a whole different story. But in spite of the challenges my father had at that time in raising my brother and I, I was only two and a half and my brother was around five. So imagine a single father trying to raise us. But I saw he's still very heavily involved in the masjid. And he always used to speak up on the side of justice. And that left quite an impression on me. I'd see that often times he would come quite intense and he'd take us to the masjid and I'd see that he'd be challenging how the masjid is being run, etc. And that's the theme that was kind of reoccurring. Why that's important? Because I kind of had that, I guess, subconsciously ingrained with me. And then as I came into kind of the mid-90s, alhamdulillah, I was blessed to be part of a study circle. We used to learn about different Islamic subjects. Brother Barbara Ahmed, mashallah, he used to run the circle at the time. And we were exposed to a different understanding. They had access to the original language, him and his brother and the different teachers that used to come to that circle. They'd speak Arabic and we'd go through tafsir and different topics. As well as the ilm itself is also this sense of brotherhood. And you'd see the guys who are a few years older than me, maybe three or four years or five years. But they had this real sense of looking out for us guys who are younger, maybe 14, 15. At that time, as I was saying, the whole Bosnia thing was happening. And you see that there was a real sense of injustice. And that kind of resonated with myself. And then these guys were speaking about it, but not only in a political sense, I guess, which is very different to some of the other groups. That they were talking about, look, how to engage, how to help on a humanitarian level, as well as others, etc. So that really helped me. And that kind of having those older guys around me helped me navigate through some of it. It doesn't mean that we didn't make mistakes, everyone, when you're young, but you think you understand it. And somebody who's perhaps one year or two years older than you seems to be so much more wiser. And suddenly as you grow older, you kind of realize. But that helped me at that time. And it's something I've also kind of come to think about is, look, are we attracted to groups because of what they say? Or is it because they reflect what we feel? Mm. That makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, I obviously am quite removed from this whole thing. But my impression was that it's not even the thoughts and the ideology or anything. It's more the kind of vibe. And the Sufis are a certain kind of culture and a certain kind of personality. The HT guys, mashallah, are very intense. And you could see that they went to university, they'd study philosophy, logic and that sort of thing. And then you've got the Salafis. This is obviously caricatures of all of them. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, no, I hear you on that. <laughs> I guess I had my own epiphany, Brim, like, when I was growing up. At that time, the groups were really kind of easily identifiable, and they were kind of labelled with a certain thing. So there's like Salafis, this is how they are. The Sufis, this is how they are. The Bleakies, this is how they are. And the HGs, this is how they are. And that kind of intermingling or dilution wasn't happening as much then. Even though I kind of came through, I guess, people who would probably describe themselves as Salafi-like when I say that. So this was more a general approach to it rather than, I guess, the very black and white form of Salafism. I went on something called the Rihla. I don't know. Are you familiar with the Rihla, Ibrahim? The only Rihlas I know, Rihla the Shita'i was safe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to translate that for the listeners, bro. <laughs> They'll know, they'll know this is from the last 10 surahs. Yeah, mashallah. <laughs> so, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, there's a program run by Dean Intensive, where Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, Imam Zayd Shakir, and some of the other, I guess you'd say, describe Sufi, meaning Mashaykh, they run a program. At that time, they used to send groups out to Makkah, Medina, and Taif, and you study with them for a month. So, I always had this thing, people would say, listen, you can't take from Sheikh Hamza Yusuf because he's a Sufi. And I go, okay, well, what do you mean by that? It would just be because he's a Sufi. And that sort of stuff never really settled with me. So I thought, let me go out and find out for myself. And I went out there, and it was a great experience spending time with the Mashaykh out there, um, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah, he, he attended, obviously Sheikh Hamza, 
Haftalah, Imam Zayb, and a few of these guys. And I got to realize, actually, you know what? The quality that you find in all of these groups that's amongst a small proportion, it's actually piety. And the pious are a small group within a small group, man. Yeah. And what we should try to attain is actually piety. We talk about different topics and people go on about them for ages. But how many people are actually call to piety in that sense? And then I also came to realize was, look, mashallah, mashallah, you had people who truly worshipped Allah. They used the intellect that Allah gave them and they were sincere in trying to find the truth. And they came to a particular conclusion. How can someone who's from a different group say that he's right and that person's wrong? There's no humility in that yeah. understanding. You have a firmness or you, a confidence in what you believe, but you have to accept that you may be wrong. Yeah. You may be wrong. So yeah. the only way you can overcome that is by being humble in front of Allah and saying that, I think this is right, but forgive me if I'm wrong. I'm searching your happiness. I'm searching your obedience in what I'm doing. We focus on the differences rather than the vast majority of things that unite us. Yeah. And the point I'm saying is actually Islamic finance is a really good example of this. Irrespective of, I guess, your aqidah or your madhab, this is something on a very real level that people are trying to interact with. And I like that, alhamdulillah. I guess generally in the mu'amalat space, you see that there's so many things that actually are general Muslim causes and things for us to, on a daily basis, allow us to live with each other and interact with each other that you find actually unify us. And I see there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, no, I know, agree completely. Omar, you navigated your way through all this morass of you know, <laughs> different kind of uh, thoughts going on at the time, and you emerged wiser, stronger, and better as a Muslim on the other side of university. Is there anything else that we should talk about at your university stage? I guess at university is also interesting because there were all of these groups, and university is always like, I guess, a microcosm of what's happening in the wider world. Yeah. And so within the university scene, I remember, each year that I was there, there was the Amir of the ISOC was from a distinctly different group. So you could see that there was the first year it was someone who's from an Ikhwani leading background. The next year was someone from a dogmatic Salafi background. And the third year was someone from a Sufi background. Each time the ISOC changed a bit. And I remember engaging with the different groups. And then one of the years I was in charge because I, I changed my course in between. And then it was just about, look, when one of the different groups is in charge, why is it that you stop engaging with people from the other groups? So that for me was interesting. And for me, it was kind of my first experience. How am I going to bring the different groups together? And so Alhamdulillah, what was quite good was I got the brothers who, on, I guess, from a Salafi background to start producing newsletters because they liked the stuff that was quite textual and being able to put that down. I got the brothers and sisters from Sufi background to engage more with the university and the different groups within the university and the people from the Ikhwani background to do our kind of community events for the ISOC. And I found that, Alhamdulillah, they were able to work together like that. That's good, and, yeah. Yeah, and so Alhamdulillah, it worked well for me at that time. And this is at the same time we also had FOSIS was the kind of the student union. It's the main Islamic, I guess, society across the UK. But at that time, we also had the emergence of London ISOC and the Qureshi brothers, Allah bless them, mashallah, what they were doing and the other guys involved in London ISOC. And then Dr. Wajid and those guys who set up Yulu ISOC, all kind of bringing something slightly different and an approach. So it was an interesting time, and I saw there was a zeal amongst the students we wanted to do stuff whilst they were at university. But unfortunately, when I started, I guess, my working career, I saw that zeal was lost. There was a lot less people coming through or being active in the same way, which is a shame. And I guess even more of a shame now because I'm looking at the city and I speak to my younger brothers and their friends and university just the whole ISOC seems to have died out to some extent. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. And so when did you, because I know you were saying that there's this kind of almost like a pathway, isn't there, from ISOC to working life. And at some point, Cube came along as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like a continuation in a way, isn't it? Of Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Because I think, look, being active, you've got to motivate yourself to do things in the right way. And it's always you have to tie what you're doing to the pleasure of Allah. And it may seem like such an obvious thing to say. But people lose sight of this. People can get involved in ISOPs either for the brotherhood or for activities or because they're feeling lonely or for a number of different reasons. But you really need to tie everything you do with seeking Allah's pleasure. And so when you enter into things with that mindset, 
it changes how you look at things and what you do. So when I started my kind of career, it actually went back to when I was at the study circle and I'd see that they'd always give us responsibility. The older brothers there would give us responsibility. So being connected to a jama'ah outside of work or uni, I guess, definitely helped because it gives you a different approach to things. And you realize that if there isn't a prayer room, you need to set one up. If there isn't jummah happening, you need to set one up. These are the things that you kind of just brought up with. So I started working in the city. Alhamdulillah, Ernst & Young, when I was there, they had a Muslim network, mashallah. There's some good brothers like Sid Jeffy, Umar Sheikh, some of these guys who were there from before. who used to run their Saturday supplementary schools, by the way. They had things, and I thought, okay, look, time to get plugged in. But then I realized actually across the city, there were probably a number of different people in different networks who needed help and support. So what we organized at that time, quite a few years ago, was a joint event between different companies. So we organized a quiz at Islander Masjid at the NMC with different firms competing against each other, and it was supposed to be for charity fundraising. But then this was kind of, I guess, the seeds for Cube to come about. At that time, it was called the Interfirm Islamic Network to try and leverage support from each other, how we can help each other. And at that time, we also ran a Khatib's training course. So I got one of the mashaykh to kind of come in at that time to EY and call different people because people who were running or doing Juma within their workplaces, they needed some help and guidance. Yeah. So we ran a course for them. And that was the kind of inkling of getting different networks together. And then Alhamdulillah, the guys at Cube, so Umar Said, Said Rahim, I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, Hamza Sagir, mashallah, these guys, mashallah, really came on board and kind of drove it and kind of collected everyone in a more formalized way. And Cube Network was that umbrella organization to help different networks engaging with DNI, engaging with, look, whether you should have a formal network or an informal network, pros and cons. How do we support each other on a practical level, sharing best practice? And so that was kind of from that point of view, I was involved with them as well. Alhamdulillah, I still am I'm part of the steering committee to really kind of help see Muslims flourish. And this is part of the whole thing about being authentic, being authentic to yourself, being able to bring yourself to work completely, not giving up your values. And that's very easy to happen in the workplace. I'm sure you're aware of it, Brian, bro. It's, just, it's a challenge. The Prophet used to always seek refuge when he used to enter the marketplace. He's a special du'a for entering the marketplace. And the city is probably the largest marketplace in the world. And we lose sight of that. If you walk into a corporate office, what's the du'a for that? Is it, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubti wal Yeah, bro, honestly, with some of the corporations out there, definitely. <laughs> so, yeah. Omar, do you want to talk to me about your time, kind of expanding from that theme about how you navigated the corporate world. I mean, I obviously was from a legal background. You obviously came at it from a accountancy, assurance kind of background. Yeah. Were there kind of situations where it was a gray area or you just felt a bit uncomfortable? And how do you deal with that? And also, what about the just kind of general drinking or networking, that side of things? It would be interesting to hear your thoughts there as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I spoke about 9-11 whilst I was at university and... 2005, the year that I graduated, was when 7-7 happened. And I remember applying for so many different jobs. And when I was at the recruitment agency stage, alhamdulillah, I'd get through. And then I remember when they'd send your final details and suddenly these jobs no longer were there. I felt at that time that it's definitely related, obviously, to having a strong Muslim name and firms weren't interested. So alhamdulillah, I think when I eventually kind of got into a role and my way into the corporate, I guess the corporate ladder wasn't directly into EY. I actually worked in the public sector for a while. At that time when I finished, there was a scheme called Finance the Future, which was looking for graduates to work in finance teams within the local authorities in London. So any of the local boroughs like Croydon, Kingston, whatever, all of these different boroughs. So that you'd go into like a central workshop, you go into an assessment center, you do interviews, and then you were only allowed to choose two authorities that you can go and work for. So alhamdulillah, I went for it, passed the assessment center. I chose two local authorities. I think it was Lewisham and Kingston. And then for Lewisham, I completely messed up the interview. And then at Kingston, it came down to between me and this other guy. And the other guy lived around the corner and they gave it to him. And I was quite 
upset to be honest yeah I, I thought to myself wow and I just got married I got married whilst just graduated from university so now I'm thinking what am I going to do and I so I rang up the guys who ran the program and I said look I know you guys don't do this but is it possible just to get some feedback like some serious feedback so I can reapply to this and then I remember I was quite down and then I remember alhamdulillah the promise of Allah is true Allah everything he does is he does for the best and I remember that time I was working some cold calling center, bro. Cold call center, yeah. You imagine that, yeah. And I just left my desk and I prayed two raqa'. And as I was praying those two raqa'a, I actually thanked Allah in sujood. I went to sujood and I thanked him. I said, look, I don't understand the wisdom of me not getting this, but I leave it to you. And then subhanAllah, as soon as I got back to my desk, I got a phone call from the guys who organized it saying, listen, we've got one other interview for you if you want to have it. And we don't ever do this, but we like the fact that you spoke to us. And look, there's one other place. Go to it. It's in Croydon which was down the road from me. And then, alhamdulillah, I went there, did the interview, and they gave me the job straight away. And so I always had this thing, subhanAllah, you know, alhamdulillah, that Allah has blessed me. And on a very personal level, I always feel that Allah has blessed me with insight or with understanding, not greater than anyone else's. Just I feel grateful for being able to see things in a certain way or having some clarity in what we need to do. So I always felt I've got to give it back to Allah the thing that scared me the most, Ibrahim, bro, is being one of these people that are nine to five. And I'm using the term rat, not to say that we're rats, but just from the idea of a mouse on a wheel or a rat on a, or one of these wheels that you get up in the morning, you go to work, you come back, and your entire life is that. That the best of what you have, the best of your ability, the best of your education, the best of your effort and your enthusiasm goes to your employer. And then at the end of it, when you're at the retirement age, this is when you want to give back to Allah. And that thing scared me, bro. Honestly, really, even now, yeah. I think having a life like that is scary because Allah never withheld him when he gave to us. So we should give back to him. And so for me, navigating through work was I always had this in mind. So I've come now into, and I guess where I left Croydon, the London borough of Croydon after about, Two years after I got a job at Ernst & Young with their grad scheme. And I started working. That's when I was really exposed to this kind of city life, corporate lifestyle, where they all go out for drinks and this type of thing. So I went into it with the mindset that, look, Allah's given me this opportunity. I need to use this opportunity. And I could see that around me, Muslims were at that time hesitant about even saying salam. They wouldn't even say salam. They'd be like, oh, hi. And then when you see them in the prayer room, they'll be a salam hiding. What's wrong with you guys? So I guess I kind of took it upon myself that, look, I'm going to try and be visibly Muslim and visibly speak out on issues to do with Muslims just to make it easier for those around me and also to make it easier for myself. Because if I'm known as being a Muslim, they will then understand why yeah. I can't do certain things. So that's how I did it. And then I'd go and speak to some of the senior guys and try and engage with them. And try and add value in different ways. But it's a challenge. Honestly, it's very, very challenging. Things like shaking hands with the opposite sex. I know there's, there's a few different views out there. But at that time, we were going in. It was very, it was very black and white. You can't shake hands with people from the opposite sex, etc. So what do you do in that situation? How to navigate it? And it's not easy. Now it's got even trickier because you don't know what the opposite sex even means. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but I guess with COVID now, you can use that oh, as an excuse, right, yeah. like fist bump or elbow bump if you want to do that. But you don't know exactly. And I look back at it and I think, okay, when they were going for drinks, and you can see the people who are doing well, they were the ones who went for drinks with the old boys club. But then I thought, okay, look, subhanAllah, it's not going to be easy, but I've got to make a stand because I need to make a stand for those around me who can't make a stand. And that strength came, Ibrahim, from having good people I could go to outside of work and within work. This is why the advice I'd give to anyone who's kind of in the corporate space or young graduates, if they're looking for work, be connected to something greater than yourself. Yeah. Be connected to something greater than yourself, because when you have that view, it will guide you and shape what you do. When you're only thinking about yourself, it can even be in a halal way. I'm not saying you're just thinking about, okay, look yourself you make decisions that ultimately serve yourself only then in whichever way that is but when you're connected to something greater than yourself you'll have that in mind when you make decisions and the way you do things and having good people around you like within Ernst Young mashallah I guess one of my mentors Omar Sheikh who went on to set up the Islamic Finance Council he worked at Ernst Young with me having him with me outside of 
alhamdulillah, like I said, Sheikh Haytham al-Haddad, alhamdulillah, very close to him, Sheikh Farid Haybatan, even Abu Isa, Sheikh Abu Isa Na'matullah, these are guys that I really love to go to and speak to and discuss things with, and they'll give me some different views on things. And that helped me, because I felt, okay, I'm representing the Muslims inside work, but I'm also representing the city and professionals to the scholars in some way, so, so that they have an understanding. So alhamdulillah, that was good, man, being surrounded by good people who kind of kept me in check and who would empathize on the situation. Definitely. I mean, when you were saying about how you were visibly Muslim, I remember the story of I went to university at Bracelet's College and they have those kind of interview stages where you don't see very many Muslims or yeah. brown people full stop. I think we had one black guy in the college the three years that I was there. And so I think they must have, they needed to find a replacement for him, Bichara, uh, <laughs> he was leaving. And the interview phase, there was a guy called Zain Iqbal, who the year after he got accepted, he got in. I was always on the lookout for Muslims. So I just went yeah. up to him and he was standing in the queue for lunch, trying to just blend in. I just walked up to him and just like, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and shook his hand. And he was like, and he always tells that story afterwards. The year after when he joined, he was like, all I was trying to do was just blend in, keep my head down. And then this joker comes over and just exposes me as a Muslim. MashaAllah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the way, isn't it, bro? It's like you, all of these little experiences. And now, look, when we look at the city and you talk about Dutch Center, how many beds do we see, MashaAllah? Mm. I can tell you something. Ten years ago, that wasn't the case. Not even the number of sisters wearing hijab, etc. Not as a mark of how practicing people are just as a sign of visibly identifying yeah definitely so much more alhamdulillah they were trailblazers before us who kind of opened the way for us to benefit from and each time we hope that we can add something to it to make it even better for those who are coming after us definitely i think we could probably talk for ages (laughs) but i really wanted to get on to your journey around islamic finance and obviously i think that Part of that, I think most of that probably started after you left EY. I think I'm just interested to hear the Islamic finance story, how that got started, and also how you transitioned from working life to the life of a kind of consultant, self-employed. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So I guess my interest in Islamic finance, I studied the economics at university, and I remember reading at that time and talking to my tutors and kind of really seeing how unjust the conventional financial system was. And at that time, HSBC and MANA had just started to come out. And I attended a talk by Tariq al-Diwani, and he spoke about the problem with interest. And for me, that was a really eye-opening moment, because, as I said, that theme of justice came back. How are we empowering Muslims? How are we helping people around the world I always kind of used to think on that level, and I thought, wait a second, the financial system is inherently unjust, the way it's structured. So I couldn't do anything with it. I thought I need to develop myself. I need to become some level of authority in something, and I can't do that, being some fresh-faced graduate out of university. So I thought, let me go and get a career for myself and then try and see if I can learn about Islamic finance on the side. So went through university, stayed in touch with some of the scholars, etc. Started when I got to EY, as I said, they had an Islamic finance desk. And there was a chap that Umar Sheikh, who I mentioned, mashallah, and he used to work in Islamic finance. And I used to have a lot of conversations with him about what they're doing and the challenges of the industry as it was at the time. I'm probably on the more conservative side, and I guess we can discuss what that means when it comes to Islamic finance. And that time he was setting up a not-for-profit organization called the UK Islamic Finance Council which was looking at helping develop the industry and the ecosystem around Islamic finance. So I started volunteering with him and them. At that time, I helped run a global program, which was teaching Sharia scholars about conventional finance. So Alhamdulillah, there's a number of different scholars, and I think they're a lot better now. But before, they would be very well-versed in fiqh or mu'amalat, these type of areas. But knowing the intricacies of the financial system, knowing how deposits work, how bonds are structured, what the insurance market is, what the reinsurance market is, all of these different types of things. So we had a structured program to take scholars through that, almost like a CPD program. And it was actually called the CPD, Continuing Professional Development Program. So I was getting more exposed to Islamic finance. And one of the things that I saw, and I guess this is from the earlier lessons that I had with Tariq al-Diwani and speaking to Shahitham and then looking into 
Islamic finance is practiced, I thought that where Islamic finance was at the time and where it should be, there was a gap. Because it was a grey area, I didn't want to work for an Islamic bank, but I still wanted to work in Islamic finance. So I was involved through the IFC in running that program. I also, alhamdulillah, they gave me good exposure to work on a number of quite big projects. One of them was at that time being part of a small group that was advising the government on student loans. I'm sure student loans is something we can talk about as well. Oh, is this the Sufyan Ismail coordinated, Sheikh Abu Isa, Sheikh Haytham? Yeah. That's right, back in the day, it was Brother Bashir Timol who was representing, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at the time, yeah, them. Osis, I was one of the, yeah, yeah. So I was one of the original guys holding up a little piece of paper saying vote for Sharia compliant student loans and working, giving advice to the government at that time about how to do it. And there's some interesting conversations we can have about that as well. Offline probably, Grim, I'll tell you some of the challenges. <laughs> So worked with them, also working with the UN at the UN Development Program in Istanbul on SDG Sustainable Development Goals and how we can align them with Islamic finance to move Islamic finance from something which is just kind of tick box to adding that layer of thayabness or yeah. going yeah. beyond. So I was working on that as well. And then more recently, Alhamdulillah, IFC, they've issued a report on shared values with the Church of Scotland and being part of the team to promote that. So Alhamdulillah gave me really good exposure to a lot of senior people and also working on stuff that was really helping the industry. There was a paper that we issued on the role of scholars in signing off products, etc., and doing some analysis on that and the whole Sharia assurance process. So that was my kind of journey through the Islamic Finance Council. And I was doing that, but they're a not-for-profit. And I realized as I was kind of working for them, I guess people also became more familiar with me as a person being aligned to Islamic finance. And I was also at the same time, I started to work quite closely with some of the scholars, as you mentioned, Sheikh Haytham al-Haddad through the Islamic Council of Europe. So if they had any issues or any queries to do with business contracts, they'd always discuss it with me first because I can then go through it from a corporate perspective. And then alhamdulillah, I started to work with them, looking at stuff through my kind of experiences actually worked on structuring a really great kind of, I guess, piece of financing for Octopus Finance on the iconic black taxis that you see around London, alhamdulillah. Then you can now get Sharia-compliant financing for them, and they're clean as well. So it's a really good story like that, alhamdulillah, trying to be innovative. And I guess a while as I was kind of doing this, I'd get other people contacting me saying, look, we need advice. And I was always kind of doing it like pro bono, saying, okay, no problem, inshallah. For me, it was always, look, the statement of Malik ibn Dinar, rahimullah, where he said that, look, if you can protect one dirham from being earned from haram sources, it's better than giving a thousand dirham in charity. And that's quite a powerful statement, because if you can take money out of an oppressive system and put it into something that's more halal or even halal, then there's a lot of reward in that. And so... For me, I was more than happy to help people on that. But then it got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm getting more and more queries and I've got my day job as well, which was in kind of technology risk by this point and digital risk. So I took the decision to give my notice at work. I didn't have anything else lined up and to kind of go into contracting and build out 360 risk as you see it now. But alhamdulillah, being very blessed to work on some of the most notable I guess, Islamic projects from a fintech perspective in the UK. Early days are working with Yielders. Great team there, mashallah. Irfan, Abid, Abdul Hasib, Basit. These guys, Mara there, mashallah. They're doing great thing and they're very, very sincere in what they've done. So was working, helping them on their Sharia governance process and some of their stuff around risk. I managed by the UK IFC, the Sharia certification with Sheikh Abu Isa Ni'matullah. I've kind of just recently formally left Yielders advising or working with Wahid now, alhamdulillah, offering advice to Juma Pay, Pi people and risk, kind of just to help join the dots on offering Sharia products for our community. For me, a big thing is to empower our community. I think we've got so much potential, mashallah, and we shouldn't have the barriers to achieve that potential. And for us, people like yourself, mashallah, the great work that you and Mohsin are doing, Ibrahim, is phenomenal. And other people in this space who are trying to help empower Muslims in making better financial decisions and understanding what the role of finance plays in our success to some extent. So that's kind of 
I moved over to this consultancy model, just gave me a bit more time to kind of do what I needed to do and cross pollinate some of the ideas that I had and to actually influence on a real level Islamic finance as it's practiced in the UK at least. Alhamdulillah. It was almost like Gandalf the Grey while you were in the corporate world and you came back as Gandalf the White. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. I hope so, bro. Like, this is it. When you're kind of in the corporate world, you realize that you're actually to some extent limited by what you can do. But again, this is not to disparage anyone who's in the corporate sector. The way I see it is, look, Allah has given you an opportunity. What do you do with that opportunity, whichever situation you're in? Always maximize what you're doing. And it's not easy. It's not yeah. easy, bro. But I think it's just a kind of mindset thing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and just using what you have. Like, I just think the amount of nonsense I got up to in the corporate world. So my first year of my training contract, about six months in, I decided, actually, you know what? I like litigation, but litigation is boring. The actual interesting stuff is the bar. Yeah. <laughs> so then I spent the next year applying to the bar just like on the side. I mean, I ultimately didn't work out. I didn't get through. That's another whole story, inshallah. I should probably do a podcast on that. Failed yeah. attempt to get to the bar. But the whole experience was just because I was kind of doing this kind of side thing. You've consistently been doing lots of side things as part of your work. There's a lot of like cross pollination and synergies that emerge. And because you're pushing to something, you can then actually use your position for good because you actually have something you're pushing for. But if you don't have anything, then you kind of, the default is, oh, well, I just want to progress my career, which is good. But in a counterintuitive way, your career actually gets progressed more when you're not focusing on it. It's kind of one of those things where if it's out of the corner of your eye, your career actually progresses better. Yeah. Other than when you just focused on it. 100%. And I think this is something I try and really share with the people around me, and especially in the working place. Look. Islam is so beautiful and so comprehensive when it talks about our approach to our work and everything. It says, look, you work with Ihsan, work to the best of your ability. And the Hadith Qudsi is amazing because it talks about the example that's given is sacrificing the dhab on the sheep because that's seen as something that people don't really like doing, isn't it? It's quite dirty. You've got to grab the yeah. animal. But it says, even if you do something like that, that you sharpen your knife, you make sure the sheep is away from others, they can't see it, and you make it quick. So you do it with excellence. However, Allah also tells us that he's our razak. He's the one who provides our risk. And when you truly understand that, it's phenomenal. Honestly, it's mind-blowing because, you look, you do whatever you're doing right now to the best of your ability. And you've got to ultimately understand and appreciate that your risk is from Allah. That 50,000 years before creation, Allah created the pen and the tablet. And he said, right, everything you were going to earn, Ibrahim, and I was going to earn was written. And then when we're in the wombs of our mothers, imagine this, fast forward now. And we're in the wombs of our mothers. And then just at the point that the angel is about to blow our souls into our mother's stomachs. And then it's written what we're going to earn. So when you really understand that, it's very, very liberating. That look, Allah's guaranteed our income, Allah's guaranteed our money. So do what you're doing to the best of your ability, but always tie it back to Allah. Even you can use this within the workspace and it's helped me actually, is look, don't try and seek people's approval, right? But try and create value. Because if you seek to create value, then ultimately the reward will follow. Unfortunately, we try and mimic, we try and impress people, even generally We imitate rather than innovate. But if we look at solving problems, if we look at creating value, I guarantee you, inshallah, that the reward from Allah will come. You do it with the best intention, you do it with ihsan, and alhamdulillah, Allah takes care of everything. People say to me a lot, actually, Ibrahim, I see a lot of my friends, may Allah forgive me, I'm not saying it to say anything about myself, but they say, look, why don't you charge for the advice that you give or the work that you do? And I say, how do you know that I'm not being rewarded for it through something else? Mm. We have this very binary relationship with our wealth. We think that if I do this over here, and if I work more hours, I'm going to get more money. But you don't understand, Allah said, when you give sadaqah, how much reward you get. When you yeah. maintain good relations with your family, how it gives you barakah. If you do istighfar, you tawbah, and all of these other things, it gives you barakah. But we focus on, I need to focus on my career, and I need to do this yeah. many hours, and I need to be seen to be doing this. And that's the cycle that we get caught up in. No, I agree. Of course, there's definitely like the role for Baraka. But actually, even just from a purely economic perspective, 
this is one of my kind of pet kind of hobby horses where I say that, look, if we as Muslims became just easier to transact with and we weren't scrimping on every penny and we were happy to do things for free, bit of give and take, what would end up happening is more people would want to transact with us. And the more transactions we have, the better off we'd actually be. Like the rich, affluent, non-Muslim area is a nicer place to live. Most people have a better quality of life than (laughs) (laughs) Good Maze, where I come from or wherever. Yeah, no, 100% really agree with it. We need to make the barriers for entry into doing business with each other better. And we need to do things better with each other, alhamdulillah. I think as Muslims, man, it's a real responsibility to do things properly. And it's increasing the Muslim pound. You're right, if we have mechanisms for transacting, and this is something that's very Islamic, if you look through history, Umar ibn Khattab, when he applied certain taxes, so for people who are coming from outside to deal in the marketplace, in the souks, that they'd have to pay more tax because he saw it as wealth going out from the ummah. So he didn't want to make it easy. And at the same time, he encouraged and he gave stipends to people to do business within the community, within the ummah. So this type of mentality is good, actually, and it leads to more success. Interesting. I mean, this is a very side point, but I think there could be like a network effects analysis done there as well. I think they were trying to create a marketplace and the idea that you punish people or disincentivize people from leaving and incentivize people from joining adds to that network effect. And the more people you have, the more valuable it is for everyone. So that's actually quite interesting. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's an article in there. Yeah, definitely. Maybe we have this relationship with money, but you're right about building the network. And look, if there's more businesses together, generally, you find that the grocers, you talk about good maids, I'm saying generally if you go Tooting High Street, all the grocers are near each other rather than being separate. And you find this in the Middle East, something I heard about, you know, the Bindaud stores, right? Yeah. They had the store and right opposite, another superstore was being built, right? One of these big chains. And subhanAllah, rather than getting upset about it, the owner, subhanAllah, he went and sent dates and coffee to the management for the new superstore and said, if there's anything you need, let us know. We're here to help you. Right. And these are the things you wouldn't think about here because everyone's really kind of have this protectionist mentality. I experienced it myself, subhanAllah. Allah bless you. Have you heard of Snowflake? Gelateria. They do ice creams or gelato. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Snowflake. So look, mashallah, bless the brothers who opened that up. I used to run a coffee shop in Gelateria with some brothers. They were doing business, alhamdulillah. And we would kind of bring our own coffee and make our own gelato. I went to speak. Somebody said, I said, go and speak to this brother, Najib. And I said that Snowflake. At that time, they just had Bayswater. SubhanAllah, brother Najib, he went and showed me how to do everything. Where to get our supplies from, where to get all the equipment from. And he goes, if you need anything, give my name. They'll give you a better deal. Anything you need. We were entering into exactly the same space as him, albeit in a different area. SubhanAllah. That was something practically I experienced. And I thought, SubhanAllah, that's amazing. He's worried. And he said to me, he goes, risk is written, man. I can help you as a brother. That was phenomenal, SubhanAllah. For me, I thought, if I'm ever in that situation, then I need to pay it forward as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I want to do like a detailed kind of research piece around competition in Islam and how the whole kind of etiquette around that works and and just thinking about that a lot more deeply. I think it's a really fascinating area. It is definitely. Something else we perhaps look at as well is the challenge between humility and self-promotion. Yeah, that's Uh, a really interesting one. It is. And I'm talking about from a corporate perspective, because in the corporate environment, you're told you need to shout about all your achievements you need to tell everyone do you know what i mean before you've even done anything and that's, yeah. everything's predicated on how you're perceived what people know about you so you go up and you say yeah i've done this i've done that which is quite the opposite to islamically i guess how we try and behave and be humble about what we've done but that can't be the answer there is something in there i think there yeah. is a solution somewhere that would be good maybe some of the listeners have some thoughts on this so they can feed it back to you yeah, that one would be really interesting. Yeah, I'd love to have a think about that. My kind of gut instinct view is that, like, obviously don't say anything that's untrue. That's a good start. And then in my head, I think it's a case of if you are not tied up with your labels that you want to put on yourself, like you are doing it 
mainly it's just like an instrumental thing to achieve the goal, which is in itself imbued with Islamic values. And obviously you do it in a classy way. Yeah. Stay uh, <laughs> classy, San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is important. It's actually really important. It is. Then it's probably fine. But yeah, lots more to think about. Well, man, I wanted to talk about a couple of things around Islamic finance because um, I think you'll have some really interesting thoughts about this. One was the whole kind of discussion around the conservative liberal elements, if that dichotomy is a correct way yeah. of thinking about Islamic finance. And then also then maybe after that would be the future of Islamic finance. And sure. where are we going? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, look, when I say conservative and when we're talking about liberal, I think liberal and conservative probably aren't the best terms to use. But I guess Islamic finance as it's being practiced. And do we think it's completely aligned to the Sharia or have some allowances been made because of the context that we're in. And so this is, I guess, my main gripe with Islamic finance as it's practiced today. I think, alhamdulillah, the people who set it up, the people who are involved are all phenomenally sincere and they want the best. And they're also subject to the conventional economic and political system that we operate under. Okay, but my thing is this, that have we in the structures that we have made allowances, are we saying that, look, under absolute Islamic conditions, would we operate and would we offer these products as they are? And if the answer is no, then that messaging needs to come out. Mm. If we think that they are absolutely intrinsically permissible as they are in spite of whichever time and whichever place that they're being offered, then it's fine. But the conversations I've had with a number of different Islamic finance scholars globally, and these are Islamic finance scholars, is that, look, we did this to help us get around this situation, yeah. which is fine. I really understand that. But that should be clear in the messaging then. Yeah. Does that make sense? So that people at least know that rather than thinking, well, Nayyad, this has been signed off. It's all cushy. It's all done. I think one of the other important things is that all of these scholars, they say that this is kind of, a temporary thing and it's a bit of a journey for Islamic finance to go on until the industry grows out. But I don't see that happening sometimes. I feel like a lot of the bigger institutions are perhaps comfortable with where they are and they're not continuing that journey. That might be unfair perhaps on the institutions. I appreciate they'll have some pressures on them as well. And I think it's not just in the UK, I think it's globally. I feel like a lot of standards have developed around what was a temporary position and yes. that kind of coalesced as this is it. I think part of the reason why we want to do this Islamic finance guru stuff is so that the ordinary person has a voice. Yes. Because the only change will happen, I think, with these guys is if the consumer tells them that, look, guys, this is not on. But right now, the consumers are all kind of disparate and floating around individually as yeah. opposed to just having like a, one kind of voice. Agreed. Just as an interesting point. There's an Islamic finance WhatsApp group made up of global practitioners. And I put on there as a question to say, is Islamic finance the solution to structural racism? Just as a discussion point. Just as a morning message. Yeah, right. And I was hoping that they would start to engage with it. But no one responded, Ibrahim, which is quite sad because we're not even thinking about it like that. If I said to you, Listen, the tallest tower in the world has just been built in Islamic Emiratistan, right? I wouldn't say which country, whichever country, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. in the Middle East. And it's structured Islamically, but it's been built on the bondage of migrant workers. Would we bat an eyelid at that or consider it non-Islamic by today's standards? No, we wouldn't. And that's the problem. We've marginalized Islamic finance to simple structures and we haven't really thought about the outcomes. How many more Muslims are empowered by Islamic finance as yeah. it is today? Yeah. None. This is another one of my kind of key issues. I feel like this is, I'm asking you the question and I'm answering it. <laughs> that is what good. <laughs> on the future is that if Islamic finance is going to, like the two big issues are it's not consumer focused. Like as you said, it's not helping consumers. And the other big issue is that You've got this temporary situation from an Islamic structuring perspective, which has been allowed to continue. And I think to solve both, we just need to draw back and go back to just first principles business, which is the Muslim consumer really is the one that needs to be addressed. You're not like a rich Arab corporation. And the way that happens is by companies like Yielders, by companies like Wahid Invest, by 
inshallah at some point an insurance company coming along yeah. in the UK, pension providers, like actual beneficial stuff. And I think once that happens, then I think that really is Islamic finance. Exactly. And the consumer has that direct relationship with it. Whereas right now it's kind of Hogan levels doing a kind of deal with some kind of subsidiary of the Saudi state. And no, no one like, I have no connection to that. Yeah. I mean, look, Shard of Glass in London, tallest building in Western Europe, finance for Islamic finance, Canary Wharf Tower, Chelsea Barracks. Tell me which Muslim in the UK has in benefited in any way or is connected to that in any way. It's yeah. just trophy assets. And I think we've also got to look within our arm reach. I mean, I guess if, if so, can we need to kind of address where we're going, where I see the future of Islamic finance. I think we're kind of looking at an Islamic finance 2.0. We're kind of entering that space now because technology is enabling a variety of different methods in which to access consumers and also to provide them products. Fintech by its nature is disruptive. Okay, so within that disruption, you've got to look at now, okay, Islamic finance, how can they leverage that? What is it that the consumer needs and how can they provide it? Number one. So I definitely see a bigger play, but we've got to be very careful with that. They're managed. We're still looking. The fundamentals don't change. Something you mentioned earlier, the fundamentals don't change. Good business has to be good business. You can't just build something predicated on an exit value only. Right. We've seen things like with WeWork. It's going to happen with other fintechs as well. We're going to really think about, and it comes back to the point I made at the beginning, what value are we creating? Because when you create the value, then the money will follow, inshallah. So we've got to look at our toolkit. So this is fintechs, etc. Also, I think crowdfunding in a different way, I think it's going to get a bit more sophisticated, connecting people with opportunities. But also one of the other projects I'm working on is the WACF. Yeah, um, yeah. The National Work Fund, because... Look, Waqf is something that's from our tradition. I guess the Islamic tradition, it was created from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, from the well of Uthman, throughout our history, to enable transactions, to enable sustainable giving, to provide strategic giving. And from a selfish point of view, when you give money, you give it as a form of sadaqa jariya that benefits you long after you've gone, inshallah. So that is a vehicle that isn't competing with business interests because it's for the communal good allows us to then support businesses, inshallah, support transactions, help people, even like around home ownership. For example, this is one of the things where the people have a challenge with Islamic mortgages as they are. I know not everyone does, but if there was a central body or a fund that enabled people to purchase their homes, and because it's patient capital, because they're not looking at shareholder return in that sense, they're a bit more flexible with the products that they can give to empower individuals, inshallah, purchase their homes and what that means then to society. So all of the points I guess you've made, Marshall Ibrahim, really resonate with me, Jazakallah, and the work that you're doing because it's very much in terms of where I want to see ourselves in the Muslim community to be empowered, the average person. What does that mean? How are we measuring that? And for me, setting up the waqf was an opportunity for that, for us to focus on the UK look at ourselves as a community strategically, what do we need and how do we ensure that we're able to do it for generations to come long after you and I are gone, that we created something that's still able to help Muslims grow. And the work for me is a vehicle for doing that. Inshallah. Omar, what do you think are the kind of gaps? I mean, this is another one of those articles I at some point want to yeah. write. What do you think are the gaps in the UK right now from the Islamic finance world? Definitely around SME financing, so small and medium-sized enterprises for them to grow. They're not addressed. So, for example, typically if, if you've got a Muslim business and they want to go, they're running two stores, I'm just using that as an example, and they want to go to three or four, how do they grow? How do they finance themselves if they want to go from a small enterprise to a medium-sized enterprise? So definitely, I think in that space, which feeds into the economic virtuous circle, because if you have more Muslim businesses that are operating, creating more money for the community, definitely an array of products for Muslims on an individual retail level. I think we need to have more products that are available from all of them. I know we've got some now from the investment side, but they need to be diversified. Funding for startups as well, and not just funding, but I guess access to market and access to help. They're having people who can advise them there. I think definitely also 
This is from our side. I guess the other side is clarity and regulation. So we're going to see, right, a plethora of neo banks, alhamdulillah, coming out, Islamic banks or Islamic e-money services. I know, mashallah, I really enjoyed the discussion that you held with Nia, Keshra and Rizq. But are these technology companies or are these finance companies? How are we applying regulation to them? Where are we restricted and where is it enabling? Some of this area really needs better development. How are we ensuring flow of funds are going to the projects that are required in the right way? These type of things, I think, are challenges. But I'll tell you one thing that I'm really happy and hopeful about, Ibrahim, mashallah. Like I said, working in this city, working at some of these people, I've seen phenomenal talent. I've seen people who are overachievers in what they do. Mashallah, supremely like intelligent, hardworking. And if they were to provide some intellectual capital to some of these problems, I think we can solve a lot of the issues. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, no, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. In some ways, I worry a little bit about these new banks because I want them to succeed. Yeah. And I feel like it's almost too hot right now. And I feel like the other thing I want is for Muslims to make Islamic finance accessible to non-Muslims as well. Because yeah. that's the big play from an Islamic perspective. Like if you would think about it, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he sent down all these prophets to give da'wah. And that's kind of one of the key things we should be focusing our life on. If Islamic finance is just for the purpose of letting Muslims tick a box, then I feel like yeah. that's suboptimal as an outcome. No. Which is actually why I quite like people like Yielders, because they're agnostic on that front. And Wahid with their underground ads and all that sort of thing because i do think that we need to reach out to the public i mean i say all this an islamic finance guru is the name it's got islamic in the name so i very much hold my hand up and say that what we are doing is not necessarily that but i feel like a lot of the islamic finance products themselves it's not fully playing to their advantage sometimes i really agree with ibrahim i think and this point is so mashallah Allah bless you for saying it that look in terms of the giving the da'wah, if we truly believe in the Sharia as a source of light, as a source of peace for the mayhem that we see around us, then we need to find our way of giving it to the world. I remember I gave a talk once at a conference on can non-Muslims benefit from Islamic finance? And I said, forget the terms. Let me speak to you about the principles. And I went through the principles like of why riba is bad, why interest is bad, why the issue of gambling, what it means, the impact it has, not having underlying assets or services, the difference it makes. And I got a standing ovation after that, the number of non-Muslims. And I had this woman coming from France, from Luxembourg, from Belgium, from Sweden, from Germany, all saying what you said completely resonated with us. Had it not been for the name, I don't know why anyone would ever have an issue with this with Islamic finance, because the principles really are of equality, really, and quality of opportunity. They're really just principles, and the only, I guess, the oppressed value. Yeah, no, I agree. Omar, you're newly a father again, <laughs> and uh, I don't want to keep you away from your family for too long. They'll start complaining about <laughs> who's uh, uh, monopolised your time. But Omar, is there any kind of final words that you'd like to kind of leave our audience and give them kind of nasiha or anything like along those lines yeah definitely i mean just to supplement what i'm saying look all of yourselves allah has blessed you with an opportunity life itself is an opportunity and either it will bear witness for you or against you if you're truly grateful to allah and we want to be from amongst the shakirin you have to manifest that gratefulness in doing acts that please allah and so whatever skills you have in any way, whatever opportunity you have, you need to find your way of giving back to Allah through those. So whether it's through intellectually, through money, through time, whatever it is, find your way. And also, look, think beyond yourselves, connect yourselves to something bigger than yourself. It will keep you focused. And also, look, don't be scared. Really, honestly, I feel generally sometimes, Allah, Muslims are in a state of fear, fear about themselves, fear about a loss of income. Look, Allah, as we said before, is the one who provides your risk. Seek value in what you're trying to do. Think about 
using your skills to create value and then Allah will take care of the rest. And that's it really. I mean, it's not more than that. I guess it's kind of just be prepared, man. Be prepared, inshallah, to do something great with your lives. And that means making a change now. No, Jazakallah khair, Umar. It's been an absolute pleasure having you and we should have you on, inshallah, more regularly because, yeah, it's great fun talking to you and I think a lot of our audience will benefit from it as well. Jazakallah khair, once again, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.